You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, good morning again. My name is Ben. It's good to see all of you this morning. I'm going to begin this morning with a little bit of a shout out to my small group. Uh, Here at King's Church, many of us meet in small groups throughout the week. This is a time where we encourage each other. We read the Bible sometimes. uh, We pray for each other. We, uh, We think about how truth applies to our lives. And one of the things my group likes to do, which is true of some of your groups, is something called an icebreaker question which is a little bit of a, uh, a group question that's supposed to uh, rid the tension before the discussion begins. Uh, basically, the idea there is you're, you're supposed to give an answer that nobody else has given and, and go kind of across the room until everybody's done. Anyways, this week's question was, what is your favorite fast, casual restaurants? Uh, or I should say a restaurant. And there were some pretty typical responses, as you can imagine, kava, Chipotle, and of course, it's a Christian uh, Bible study, Chick-fil-A. Uh, and there are also some really bad responses like Sweet Green and Waffle House, which are equally bad, bad uh, restaurants on... Okay, all right. Okay, all right. Someone even said Texas Roadhouse, which, you know, I thought, I thought that was a little bit weird. Um, I don't know what kind of money you got, but uh, Texas Roadhouse is definitely not fast casual. Anyways, it gets to me. And uh, as usual, I go last. The room is a little bit rowdy like it is uh, right now. It's a little bit chatty. And so I decide internally, I'm just, gonna, I'm just not going to answer. And I'll go ahead and I'll start the study. I think maybe no one's going to notice. And so I do, and no one notices. Uh, no one bothered to ask me. But I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it. And uh, if I had to answer, if I had to answer, my answer would be none other than Kentucky Fried Chicken, a.k.a. KFC, and you can put that up on the screen. KFC is not only finger-licking good, but in all seriousness, the founder's story is an amazing story of perseverance. I can't go too deep into it, but Harlan Sanders, a.k.a. Colonel Sanders, founded KFC. Uh, Harland had a pretty tough path to get there. He left school at 13 years old. He took on a lot of side jobs to to make it. Uh, He got fired from a lot of those side jobs. He had a very rough divorce. Finally, he earned a law degree, but uh, in his first year had a brawl in the courtroom with one of his clients and lost his license. And so later in life, uh, at one point, the colonel only had $105 in his bank account, and he was a cook. So he had this idea that he was going to sell his secret chicken recipe to a restaurant. And he saw that he could make some money off of that. And so he did. And that restaurant sales eventually boomed. And so that eventually led him to franchising and selling the secret chicken recipe. And from that, of course, a much longer story, KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, was born. Uh, Colonel Sanders became a millionaire in his 80s, and most importantly, him and his wife became Christians at 88 years old and were baptized in the Jordan River, which means, you know, this chicken is going to be in heaven. So (laughs) he overcame all odds. Uh, It's an amazing story. Now, I know that for some of you, that little bio is still not enough for you to ever go into a KFC. That's fine. You really don't know what you're missing, but I know that 
all of us can get behind stories of perseverance, stories about people or teams that overcame impossible and massive odds. Stories like people uh, named Elie Wiesel, who survived Nazi concentration camps, the 1980s American Olympic hockey team, Medal of Honor recipients like Desmond Doss, who rescued 75 soldiers in enemy fire, and countless numbers of other stories with people that had very difficult pasts and that overcame impossible odds. Against all odds, they overcame. They persevered. We can all get behind those stories because they show unlikely or unexpected triumph. And as a church, over the last 40 weeks, we have been studying the book of Acts. It's the origin story of the Christian church. And if you could summarize the main idea, not the main idea of this message, but the main idea of that book, it's exactly that idea. The massive, unexpected, unlikely triumph of the Christian church. Against all odds, a group of 120 men and women turn the world on its head. They face massive cultural barriers, persecution, misunderstanding, spiritual warfare. They have little funding, but within 30 years, without the internet, without marketing, without an angel investor, there's literally hundreds of thousands of Christians throughout the world. Different cultures, different classes, from different backgrounds, all impacted by the grace of God. And as we've been reading through the book of Acts, the reason that happened wasn't because of human greatness. It's because the strength of God. It was because of the mercy of God, who works by his spirit to make Jesus Christ known, to bring an unexpected, unlikely triumph of the Christian church in the world. And this morning, as we finally finish the book of Acts after 40 weeks, that's really the main idea of this message, and the, really the big idea of these final paragraphs in the book of Acts, and it's this. The gospel is unstoppable, meaning in a world of disease, tears, opposition, confusion, unbelief, pride, depression, and anxiety, God is on the move. The mercy and grace of God is going to the whole world, and it's ultimately not contingent on any person, on any church, but it's contingent on God who raises the dead. And my line's going to be up on the screen, and it's pretty simple and straightforward this morning. Number one, the gospel to Rome. We'll look at these last few verses in chapter 28. And then nine takeaways from the book of Acts. Surprise, surprise, if you haven't been here the last 40 weeks, I'll summarize some of the great takeaways from this book. So let's look at Acts 28. Paul, who's been a major catalyst for the expansion of the Christian message, is a prisoner on a boat to Rome. He's been going there because he's on trial. Uh, he's innocent, but he's had to appeal to Rome because he wouldn't get a fair shake in the Jerusalem courts. So he appeals to Rome. He's always wanted to go to Rome, but not like this. And so let's pick up in verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship 
that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petoliae. So essentially, they're on an Egyptian ship from Alexandria, and they're threading through Sicily through the uh, southern boot of Italy. And finally, they land at what we would call today modern-day Naples. So it's not a, not a bad trip. Verse 14, there we found brothers and sisters... And we invited to stay, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. So they found other Christians, other people who had the same hope, uh, the same faith as them, and immediately there's friendship, and then there's hope. Verse 14, and we came to Rome, that is the region of Rome, like the, the Rome metro. Verse 15, and the brothers and sisters there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns, to meet us. That's a small town about 45 miles south of Rome and a trading post. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Again, these friends, these other believers strengthened his heart, strengthened his, his courage. Verse 16, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. It's likely everybody saw his character, everybody saw his innocence, so he's not locked up in prison. Instead, he's kind of on house arrest. Verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. They're likely not telling the full truth here, verse 22. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, that is Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. The text goes on. Paul invites them over to his house. Uh, these are his people, and he spends all day long with them, testifying, verse 23, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He's basically saying, you guys believe in Exodus. You believe in Deuteronomy. You believe in Leviticus. You believe in Isaiah. But just believing in these alone is like reading a novel without knowing its ending, without knowing the last chapter in the book. If the last chapter is not in the book, you'd write the publisher and you'd say, where's my last chapter? And he's saying, Paul is saying, that last chapter has come. That last chapter has arrived. It now makes sense. The answer is Jesus. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. All of God's amens are yes in Jesus Christ. Through the cross and resurrection in the book of Genesis, God's promise to Eve that one day her descendant would crush the head of the serpent is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the book of Exodus, 
Uh, the God who splits the sea so slaves can be free. In reality, that is fulfilled in the uttermost through Jesus who splits the sea to set us free. In the book of Isaiah, the prophesied child who becomes the prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, is now here. He has arrived. He's a yes. He's the amen to all of God's promises. Paul reasons with them through the Old Testament. He says, the last chapter is here. The mystery has uh, been unraveled. It's been fulfilled. And the passage continues saying, verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. In other words, he sees another example of his people not believing, and he says it comes down to one thing, pride. They don't respond to the gospel because they don't want to respond to the gospel. Their pride keeps them from God, as it always does. The book closes with this note, verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's a bit of an abrupt ending. Luke, the writer, really doesn't tell us what happened to Paul. Uh, but the book is not about Paul. It's about the unstoppable advance of the gospel. Even with all these trials, the gospel still reaches Rome. Imprisonments, killings, beatings, barriers. But God isn't mocked. He isn't slowed down. The gospel can't be stopped. It can't be imprisoned. It can't get killed. It goes through every barrier. It finds a way. It's unstoppable. Now, we've been studying this book for 40 weeks, as I mentioned, for a very long time. Acts is alive in so many ways. And there's so much we've learned and can continue to learn as a church from this book. And so I want to spend the, the remaining amount of my time looking at nine specific takeaways from this wonderful book, the origin story of the Christian church. So number one, one thing we learn from this book is that the Christian life is not a solo effort. The Christian life is not a solo effort. Throughout the book of Acts, we see amazing miracles. We see the relentless advance of the Christian gospel. We see a lot of new churches started. We see hard moments. But throughout all of these moments, the church is together. They have each other's back. They're fighting to stay connected. And when you look at Paul's life in particular, he was extremely relationally deep. He was extremely relationally rich. He doesn't do stuff alone. At the very least, he has Luke with him, his traveling partner. 
We see throughout his travel that he's often stopping at other Christians' homes. Uh, He often stays with other believers for weeks. There's emotions, there's tears, there's joy as he meets new Christians and experiences this automatic commonality. He doesn't have a lone ranger mentality. He's not trying to do the Christian life alone. George Swinnick once said, Satan watches for those vessels that sail without a convoy. Satan watches for those vessels that sail without a convoy. The point there is that if we try to do the Christian life alone, without the church, we're like a solo ship in pirate-infested waters. We'll get picked off, for sure. The normative state for the believer is a life connected to the church, a life connected to other Christians, not just reading the Bible, not just listening to YouTube sermons, not just coming to an event and dipping out, but a life connected to the body of Christ. Number two, God uses unexpected means to accomplish his purposes. God uses unexpected means to accomplish his purposes. Throughout the book of Acts, we see this all the time. Like when Paul's nephew overhears an angry mob's conversation to try to take him out, and he reports it and saves Paul's life, or like the strange dream that Peter received that ultimately helps him understand what the Lord is doing in that moment. But what really stands out as we've studied this is how God is constantly using the Roman Empire to protect Paul. He uses non-believing governors, non-believing politicians. He uses the Roman judicial system He uses non-believing Roman military officers, centurions, all the time in order to protect the apostles, in order to protect the church. In most instances, these are not Christians, but they've got honor. And as a result, God uses them. This is a great reminder of the very cliche statement that God works in mysterious ways. We can't put God in a box There's no field guide or specific answer book for the life that each of us has ahead of us. Following God can be filled with surprises. Proverbs 16 says, We can make our plans, but the Lord establishes our steps. Number three, another thing we learn from this wonderful book is that Christians pray a lot. You can tell I came up with these myself. And Acts, you can't miss it. The church is praying a lot. Christians seek Jesus a lot. Almost every time something really important happens in the book of Acts, prayer comes before the work. As we read this book, we're meant to make that connection. The early church prays for their works of service, for miraculous help, for the spread of the gospel, for God's conviction to work in their hearts, for the spirit to fill them, for wisdom, for God to push back evil, for health, for the conversion of people, especially people that don't like them. They're praying together all the time. In homes, on the streets, in the temple, they're praying everywhere. It wasn't their last resort. It was their first response. Pastor Tim Keller says it like this, To fail to pray then is not to merely break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. To pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent on God for everything. Prayer is awe, intimacy, struggle, 
yet the way to reality. There is nothing more important or harder or richer or more life-altering. There is absolutely nothing so great as prayer. They pray a lot. Number four, another thing we learned from the book of Acts is that suffering Christians had an indestructible joy. Suffering Christians had an indestructible joy. One of the reasons the gospel spread so fast in the first century is how much power Christians had in the face of suffering. When the apostles are thrown into jail earlier in the, earlier in the book of Acts, they're filled with hope. When Stephen is literally getting martyred in Acts chapter 8, the Bible says his face is like the face of an angel. He's filled with hope. And when Paul and Silas are in prison, they're singing songs to God at midnight. God was ultimate in their lives. They knew their salvation was secure in Jesus Christ. They knew that their biggest problem was taken care of by God's mercy. And when other people saw that, it made them think. And it still does today. Now, this is a hard truth this morning, but if the greatest love or hope of our lives is career or relationship or status or health, suffering can absolutely devastate our lives. It can devastate our lives because it can take those things away. And then the core of us is gutted. But if the greatest love or hope of our lives is God, his love, his grace, suffering doesn't have the final word. It can't take that away. The core of us is secure. Pain will be real, but a real joy in Christ will transcend that pain. It will let you find a light, bright light on your darkest days. This reality really changed people as we've read through the book of Acts, and it still does today. Number five, another thing we can learn from this book is that the church in its best form is marked by a radical unselfishness. The church in its best form is marked by a radical unselfishness. As one pastor noted, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The rest of society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. Society gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money. Lucian, a, an opponent of Christianity, a first century Greek philosopher, said this of Christians. Their founder taught them that they should be like brothers and sisters to one another. And therefore, they despise their own privacy and view their possessions as common property. They had a deep unity in Jesus, as we read through the book of Acts. They weren't mastered by stuff. They were mastered by him. They knew the needs of their community. They knew the needs of each other, and they stepped up repeatedly, continually. Now, we don't need to overcomplicate this this morning. If you struggle with this one, remember that God has given us people to love and things to use, not people to use, and things to love. The gospel frees us from materialism. We're not enslaved to what we don't have or what we have. We've been set free by God. Number six, Christianity doesn't belong to one culture more than another. 
Christianity doesn't belong to one culture more than another. The early Christians, the early Jewish Christians, were particularly shocked by this reality. They were all Jewish, and they just assumed Christianity was a Jewish cultural religion. It was the fulfillment of Judaism, and that just like it has always been, it would remain in Jerusalem. So in order to know God, you needed to become both religiously Jewish as well as culturally Jewish. But throughout the book of Acts, we see it spreading everywhere. We see it going to the Samaritans. We see it going to the Ethiopians. We see it going to the Greeks. We see it going to the Romans, to the rich, to the poor. Their lives are transformed by the gospel. And yet none of them culturally became Jewish. It was unthinkable. What happened instead was that they found God right where they were. Their lives were transformed but it didn't mean that they had to relocate to Jerusalem or become culturally Jewish. The point is, is that Christianity doesn't belong to one particular culture. It doesn't belong to one language. Being a Christian doesn't mean we get assimilated or united into one language, say like Arabic or English. It's not restricted to one worship style. Some Christians put their hands up. Other Christians like here, we slowly wobble back and forth. <laughs> we worship in spirit and truth, right? And it's not limited to a region. We don't take a pilgrimage to a holy land. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Being a Christian is about universal truths. It's about a relationship with God through the Lord of all the cultures, which means if you're from the Northeast, and you become a Christian in the South, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden to be a good Christian, you have to listen to Chris Tomlin and watch SEC football, which means if, if you're from the Dominican Republic and you become a Christian in the Midwest, that doesn't mean all of a sudden you, you forget how to dance, all right? Like, Christianity doesn't flatten the cultures. It renews cultures. It enhances cultures. It heals cultures and it redeems cultures, and ultimately it unites cultures in a way that nothing else can. These truths allow the Christian gospel to fly in the first century, to spread like wildfire in the first century, to produce a unity without leveling cultures that nothing else can in this world. Number seven, God never wastes pain. God never wastes our pain. In Acts, the early church goes through the ringer. There's hardship because of the broken world they live in, but there's also pushback and misunderstanding from other people because of their faith in Jesus Christ. As we saw at the end of Acts, passage we looked at this morning, Paul is under house arrest. It's not an ideal situation. Actually, it's a pretty awful situation. But it's during this time where hundreds of people go to his house and hear the gospel, and become Christians. It's during this time where God uses Paul to write major letters that are in the New Testament. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, all during this time. Over and over and over, his hard times are redeemed. His circumstances were not always great, but his pain was never wasted. He knew God wanted to use the hard moments for something good. 
This is because for Paul and also for us, our painful seasons don't define us. Shipwrecks don't define us. Jail doesn't define us. Life is full of seasons, and one season doesn't get to define you. You may be in a tough season right now, but that doesn't define you. Seasons change. Winter doesn't last forever. Take heart that you have not been forgotten this morning. You have not been abandoned. We're not under wrath. We're under God's mercy. Find joy in that reality this morning. Everything doesn't always have to be happy. Joy and happiness are two different things, but joy is higher than all of our circumstances, and it's rooted in a God who is forever wise and gracious and knows what he's doing. Trust in him today. Let him redeem the darker seasons of your life. Pressure makes diamonds. He brings beauty from ashes. He can use our pain for great things. Number eight, ultimate identity is received, not achieved. Ultimate identity is received, not achieved. In Acts, Christians go through trials, and they need to be reminded of who they are and whose they are. Now, the concept of identity is at the root of what it means to be a Christian. At the end of the day, Christians aren't people who are trying to be better people, Christians are people who've received a new identity. What I mean by that is this. The traditional view of identity is you get your identity from your assigned role in the family, particularly the family unit and how well you play your role in that family. So if you're a wife or if you're a son, that comes first. That's your assigned role. And how you perform in that role gives you high esteem or low esteem. It's about who you are in the group, who you are in the family, and your worth in this traditional view is tied to how you fulfill that particular role or family expectations. The modern view of identity reverses this idea. The modern view of identity is you get your identity from expressing or living out who you think you are. It's not about an assigned role or how you play that role. It's about looking into your heart, figuring out what are your dreams, what are your desires, and no matter what anyone else thinks, living those out. And how you perform living up to your dreams or your desires or your goals gives you high esteem or low esteem. It's about who you uniquely think you are, and your worth is based on if you've fulfilled your self-expectations. Now, both views are basically the same thing. They're both based on achievement. How you live up to your family's expectations or how you live up to your own expectations. They're both based on performance, on achievement. Your worth, your rightness as a human is tied to how you're doing. But with Jesus, with Christianity, it is different. Your identity, your worth is received. Your rightness is from a gift from the hand of God. Our ultimate identity doesn't come from achieving or not achieving who we're supposed to be in our family. Our primary identity is not ultimately from achieving or not achieving who we uniquely think we're supposed to be since we've been kids. Our primary identity has nothing to do with achievement as believers. It has all to do with the gift of God. 
the grace of God, the righteousness of God, meaning in the gospel, we receive a new identity. In the gospel, God takes our sin, our worst defeat, and he puts it on Jesus. And he takes his greatest validation, his very righteousness, and he puts it on us, which gives us a solid core, a new identity, an unshakable gift that can't be taken from us. Number nine, and finally, Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. About two years after this book concludes, the date is July 18th, 64 AD. Caesar Augustus Nero leads the Roman Empire. That empire at the time stretches from Britain in the northwest to Egypt in the southeast. The Christian movement is everywhere at the time. But over the last few years, Nero has gone absolutely mad. Somehow a massive fire begins in Rome, and it spreads for six days, and then reignites and burns for three more days. Three of Rome's 14 districts are completely burned to the ground. Many people believe Nero started the fire so that he could create an emergency situation in the empire. And that's exactly what he did. Through the crisis, Nero bypasses the Senate so he can redesign Rome. And in this, and in rage, and in this age, he deflects rumors about who actually started the fire. And he blames Christians in Rome. And for a time, Christians are rounded up, and they're tortured, they're fed to lions, they're burned alive in one of the worst persecutions that the church has ever endured. And it's here, in this time, 64 AD, where Paul finally loses his life. Just before he dies, he writes to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. His light goes out. But a million more are born, and within years, the gospel is everywhere. It's not contingent even on the greatest spokesperson or missionary or church. It's contingent on God who raises the dead. And today, even as we move to a time of the Lord's Supper, we can confidently say the gospel is alive. The gospel can't be stopped. It breaks through every barrier. The gospel will always find a way. You can kill its preachers. You can shut down its churches. You can throw up all kinds of barriers. People can come up with all sorts of reasons why they're not accountable to God, but in the end, it doesn't matter. The gospel will find a way. It's the most powerful and vital force on the face of the earth. It's broken through everything. And it's that way because Jesus promised it would be that way. He'll build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC Podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.